Eagles Entertainment. With the 21st pick in the NFL Draft, the Philadelphia Eagles select... You're listening to the Journey to the Draft Podcast. Welcome to the Journey to the Draft Podcast. I'm your host, Fran Duffy, and we've got another fun show for you today as I welcome in three people to discuss a bunch of players. And I think it's fair for me to say that this will be a bit of a defensive-centric episode, especially in the first couple of segments, because in pick six, I welcome my friend Greg Cosell to talk about the top pass rushers in this class. Who are they? How do they win? What schemes do they fit in? What traits do they all share? We're going to hit on all of that with Greg at the top of the show, and then we will then transition to Mr. Relevant, where I welcome in Really one of my favorites to follow on Twitter when it comes to evaluation of defensive back play. And that's former NFL defensive back Eric Crocker. And today, we're going to just hone in on the cornerback position with Eric to talk about the strengths, the weaknesses, scheme fits. He's got rankings of the top corners. We're going to talk all about the top names at that position in the NFL draft. And afterwards, we will then jump into Draft Buzz, where Ben Fennell and I, we're back into the mock draft business. Trevor Sikama from the Draft Network dropped his most recent mock draft. And there was a lot of fun situations to break down in that piece, which you can go find over at the Draft Network. So, Ben and I will get into that before we wrap the show up with our draft mailbag where once again we've got a few questions from you uh, at home three in fact and we'll do that to finish this episode up before we get things started I wanted to remind you once again about jumping onto our Apple podcast page and leaving a rating leaving a comment that's the best way to get your voice heard here on the show and not only that but it helps us in terms of being able to push the show up the ratings and make it more visible for people looking for podcasts about the NFL draft so head on over to Apple podcasts leave us a rating leave us a comment. We will answer your question. If you've got a question, we'll answer it. It could be about a specific player, uh, position rankings, a mock draft, really whatever it is. You leave it there. We'll hit on it on the very next episode. And right now, the queue, we're, we're getting close. I hit on a bunch of these questions uh, here today. So if you want your question answered, all you have to do is just jump right on, leave your question in the comment section, and we'll get to it here very soon. Before we get this show rolling, I wanted to also remind you guys to go check out the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. We dropped two episodes this week that I think really no matter what team you root for in the NFL, I think you'll enjoy it. First up, I talked with former Super Bowl winning head coach Brian Billick with the Baltimore Ravens about the process of creating and maintaining a playbook. What goes into that for a coach and how does that impact the weekly game plan and teaching players? It was a really fun, informative conversation, really kind of peeling back the curtain on a part of the the process for coaches that fans don't hear much about. So it was a really fun conversation. Really enjoyed that one with Coach Billick. And then uh, another episode that actually dropped yesterday, Ben Fennell and I broke down the tape on Pro Bowl tight end Travis Kelsey, one of the best tight ends in recent memory in the NFL. What did the film show us about his success, and how does that apply to a guy like Kyle Pitts in this NFL draft? It made for a really fun conversation that, again, no matter which NFL team you root for, I think you'll enjoy it. That's my goal, not just on this show, but also over on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. So, that being said, enough about Eagle Eye. Let's get now to the Journey to the Draft podcast. We're here to start things off with Pick 6. Now it's time for Pick 6. All right, let's start things off here on Pick 6 with my friend Greg Cosell as we uh, get ready to talk some pass rushers, Greg. This will be a a fun group to break down. Yeah, and uh, I'm told that pass rushers are kind of important in the NFL, so uh, it's a good thing to talk about. Yeah, no question. And and what makes this class so interesting, Greg, is that you know, usually every year, you know, there's a Chase Young or a Miles Garrett, you know, the generational pass rushers that come along every single year, apparently. Uh, this, <laughs> this year, yeah. they don't, we don't have one, right? There's not that universal guy in the top five or top ten that, you know, everybody's really, really excited about. But there are a handful of players that, you know, everyone assumes are going to go in the, the top 40, top 50 picks of this draft that 
I think are interesting to kind of talk about it. And one guy I'll start things off with is a player who did not play a down this year and uh, has seen by some as a top 10, top 15 overall talent in this draft out of Miami, Greg Rousseau. And I know you studied Rousseau last summer. I'm interested to kind of get your thoughts on on him and how he ultimately translates to the NFL. This is a guy that has not played a lot of football, at, at least along the defensive line. I converted, I believe he played wide receiver and safety in high school. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I watched him last summer, and I watched, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, four, I watched six games, six full games of Rousseau. And obviously he's got the kind of size, Fran, that you can't teach, yep. and that's a trait. We know that size is a trait. Um, and he's got other things that go well with that size comes length. He is athletic. I wouldn't call him explosive, but he's athletic. Obviously he has great arm extension. He's got some functional flexibility. He's not bendy, but he's got some functional flexibility. He has that speed to power trait. Um, He can redirect, you know, he's not sudden as an edge rusher. Um, I thought watching him last summer from his 2019 tape, I thought speed to power was his most effective pass rush move. Hmm. Let me ask you a question with him because a lot of his production came when he lined up inside and not necessarily, oh, we're going to kick him down to play as a three technique. They would put him as a zero tech and kind of some exotic sub front looks and kind of get him isolated on centers and and he would do work, right? And And he was very, very productive from that spot. How do you look at that when you're projecting him to the NFL? Because you don't know for certain that that is how he's going to be used in the NFL. And you don't, you, some of those you would say, Oh, I don't know if that's a, a translatable look at what he's going to be asked to do on a down by down basis. How do you kind of look at that? It's a great question because I made that point that he aligned inside in multiple positions and sub fronts snaps at zero at one technique in three man, a lot of three man sub fronts right. in 2019. And he was the zero technique. And then he was the three technique at times. So, you know, I think it, it wouldn't surprise me if in sub fronts he did get moved inside at times. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the big question teams have to decide with him is, is he truly an edge pass rusher? Yep. Um, I, I kind of, I'll give you an example. He's got great size, obviously. So when I was watching him, one player who came to my mind, and I don't know if you felt the same way, was Marcus Davenport. Okay. Because I remember watching Marcus Davenport coming out of college, and I liked Davenport. And and if truth be told, I like Davenport's college tape and, and his transition and proje- projection more than I like Greg Rousseau's. Yep. Um, so I'm very curious as to how teams see Rousseau. Um, I think that he, he certainly will check a lot of boxes because of that size and length. But I think if you're just looking at his 2019 tape, which is really all we have, yep. I think you're projecting him based on what you believe he can become, not on what he consistently showed on tape. And that's, that's what teams should be doing as yep. well. Projecting that, that that's the goal because obviously he's playing in college and now he has to play in the NFL. But I guess my point is, to me, he didn't jump off the tape where I felt like, wow, this guy is just an absolute can't miss. And you started by pointing out Chase Young. Chase Young, you watched his tape and you pretty much said, this guy's going to be a great football player in the NFL. I didn't come away from Rousseau's 2019 tape feeling that way. Yeah, I mean, my, my son is uh, 19 months old. He could watch Chase Young and say, man, that guy's really explosive. That guy's really powerful. Uh, maybe not in the, in such uh, eloquent words, but uh, <laughs> I would say he'd be able to point at him and say he's a, he's a good player. Uh, let me ask this question. Um, you know, when it comes to a guy like that, that's got that, that length and that ability uh, to you know, kind of use that to his advantage, 
Do you kind of discount if you compare him to other pass rushers that we'll get to? How much does that length kind of come into play for you? Is that going to be like a team by team thing, scheme by scheme deal? Or are you like that's a, that's something that is going to be really important for his development moving forward? Um, I mean, theoretically, it's important, but there's a downside to the to the length as well. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it, it's like the old expression: you know, you pray for rain, you got to deal with the mud. Um, you know, I think when when you're that long, and he had a tendency to play high at times, yes. and yep. I think that comes with the length. And what that does is that significantly minimizes both the power, the leverage, the athleticism, the flexibility. Because there were times I thought he played stiff-legged and rigid in his lower body, and that will always get you beat in the NFL. Mm-hmm. So I have questions about him. Now, I understand uh, a very good friend of mine is um, who actually worked on the matchup show was at the University of Miami and helped recruit him, and he apparently is an unbelievable kid, you know, will do all the right things. Um, so I'm sure he will work extremely hard. But as you and I both know, sometimes that that knack for playing high and upright, that's a hard thing to coach out of someone. Yeah. And as you said, it's not necessarily about what he is now. It's what he's going to be down the road. I think when you compare him to some of these other pass rushers, you would say that, look, these guys are better players in 2021. But what are they going to look like in 2025? And where is this kid uh, at that point? That's what all teams are going to be trying to project uh, with him moving forward. Let's go to a guy that would have been his teammate this year, where they were teammates last year, Jalen Phillips, who was redshirting a year ago after transferring from UCLA. Uh, He was also recovering from an injury. He was putting on weight, uh, got a little bit bigger and stronger last offseason to get ready for this fall. And then had a big year, former number one recruit coming out of high school uh, down there for the Hurricanes. What did you see from him on film from 2020? Now, I'm not going to compare him to Chase Young. Okay, Chase Young's in, in a, a class of his own. But I thought of, of all the edge rushers I've watched to this point, I've watched the ones who were considered the top ones. I mean, mm-hmm. there's always the fun, as you and I both know, of watching guys who we don't necessarily know a lot about. And, you know, you, sometimes you get surprised. But of all the guys who are considered the top guys, I liked his tape the most. I liked his traits the most. Interesting. Um He's got size, length, athleticism. He's sudden. He's explosive. He's flexible. He's got power, balance, competitiveness. To me, he checked all the boxes. Um, and, you know, we know that he had some some issues, which is why he I, I guess the issue was more medical, because if, if if memory serves me correctly, maybe, you know, this, I think UCLA DQ'd him medically. Yes. Um, so, but I mean, this year he played in all the games, didn't miss any games. So I don't know what that means as far as NFL teams when they, you know, do all that work on him. But I think he's got great twitch. He's sudden. He's, I thought his balance was really good. He had, to me, had elite movement and change of direction. He was rarely on the ground. Um, I, to me, he's a 4-3 D end that if you're a 4-3 base team like a Mike Zimmer in Minnesota, that kind of defense – to me, Jalen Phillips fits that about as well as you could fit it. Uh, to me, let me, I want to ask you a question because I, not necessarily that Phillips is this guy, but when you look at a player that won in so many different ways, the flashes were just so, so good uh, oh, yeah. with that player. How do you kind of juxtapose a guy like that versus someone who just consistently down in, down out? You're like, man, this guy just consistently pops off the film. Maybe the flashes are not as high, um, but you know, uh, he more consistent on a down to down basis. How do you look at that when you're looking yeah. at a defensive lineman? It's a great question because you and I both know that even great defensive ends are not getting, you know, 20 quarterback pressures and six sacks a game. That doesn't happen, yep. you know? So I try to, you know, if I'm watching a full game and that's what you and I do, we don't just watch highlights. We yep. watch 
full games on coaching tape. So if I feel like I'm not seeing plays being made, see what I try to do is I watch each snap as a separate snap. So very often plays go away from you. Very often it might be a quick game throw in which no one's going to get there. Yep. So I try to make it, you know, in, in my evaluation, I try to figure out, okay, why does it appear, it appear that he's not a factor. And, you know, I come to my own conclusions, as you do, based on that. And there could be any number of reasons why that's the case. I did not feel, and I, I think you did a little more than I, and there's no right or wrong here. I did not feel that he, quote unquote, disappeared. I love that term when people say that, sure. you know, because you have to look at each play as a separate play. Um I just think this kid's got all the traits, and I thought there was no problem with his competitiveness, effort, and intensity. If I thought there was a problem with that, we'd be having a little different conversation, but I didn't think there was a problem with that. Another guy that is really, really intriguing, and I, and I really had a lot of fun watching his film, was George's uh, Aziz Ojolari. And I'm interested to kind of get your thoughts yeah. on how you viewed him uh, when watching him. I know you talked about him a couple weeks ago uh, when we talked about Alex Leatherwood from Alabama. Uh, what have you seen now focusing in just on Ojolari? And he, see, he's a totally – it's funny because when all said and done, both Phillips and Ojolari will be viewed as pass rushers in the NFL, yep. but they're totally different because – Phillips is long and probably weighs 260 plus. Ojolari is shorter, a little sawed off relative to Phillips. And I guess he'll probably weigh what? Would you say 240 ish, give or take? Something like that, it seems like. Yep. Yeah. I mean, even if he's 245, you know, maybe he gets to that. Um, so I think that there's some natural power to him for his size. I think he's got really good bend and balance and his change of direction. I, I wouldn't call him twitchy in the way I would say Phillips is twitchy. Um, but I thought his flexibility at the top of his pass rush arc with really good balance and body control to corner and close was really good. Uh, I thought that that was, you know, a specific trait that I honed in on. The question is, you know, in a base defense, and again, you'd like these guys to play in your base defense as well, particularly if you're going to draft them high, even though we know the league is more so a sub league you still would like him to play in a base he'd have to be a, an outside linebacker in a, in a three four five two front don't you think yeah i think so and i think that uh you know it Look, at his size, I think there are some guys in the league that have shown, hey, I can, I can play defense. I can play with my hand in the dirt, uh, you know, you know, at that size. I am interested to see at his pro day what he comes in at. And, and yeah. that I think will uh, give us a little bit more ease in terms of the projection. Yeah, but I liked his uh, – I like the way he played. I, I think he's – like I said, I wouldn't – I don't know. I'm curious as your thought. I didn't see him as sudden, but he's certainly very athletic. Yeah, so to me, I thought he was really sudden and violent with his hands. I thought that okay. that's where uh, that showed up. And I loved, uh, to me, like I like a guy that shows like, hey, I've got I've got one go to move. This is where I can lean on. I'm going to win with this move, and then I'm going to have a couple counters off of that. And I thought that that showed up with Ojolari. I thought that he kind of was a little bit more advanced in terms of his hand usage when pairing right. that, uh, you know, with that uh, the competitiveness, but then also, uh, you know, with the flexibility and the balance and body control. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that he showed a lot of strength and pop in his hands. I agree with you. I thought that his hands were strong. All right, let's get to another player here. We'll go to the Big Ten, and we'll talk about uh, Quiddy Pay from Michigan. He'd be another guy uh, like Rousseau who was moved up and down the line of scrimmage. Uh, what did you see from Pay over the course of your film study? Yeah, he, I thought he was one of the more intriguing guys. I mean, uh, I'm still finishing him up from this year. He only played four games. 
but last year I watched seven games last summer. Okay. Um, and, you know, he's got, I would say he's a, an intriguing guy. He's got strength. He's athletic. I wouldn't call him again. He's not twitchy because his body type is different. He's almost built like the old school defensive end, Fran. Right. Yep. You know, he's not like he's not a short guy. He's not six two, but he's not sleek looking. He doesn't have that kind of body type. Um, but I think he's a very good athlete. I think he can redirect. I think he has change of direction. I think he has good hands. Um, you know, I think there's a lot to unlock there. Um, I think he could become a really good player. Um, you know, the question is how people see him because of the body type. He's he's kind of compact and dense as opposed to, you know, sleek and athletic looking, even though he's a good athlete. There's a, I was going to ask you about the athleticism portion of it with him because uh, the reported numbers and uh, some of the stuff that he's put out in his own social media accounts – eye-popping in terms of some of the stuff that he's going to do from a testing standpoint. Uh, so I wanted to ask you if that athleticism had shown up on film for you. I mean, he's athletic, you know, yeah. and, and as you and I both know, there's a difference between athletic and twitchy and sudden. Yep. Um, and I think he's very athletic. And the thing is, in high school, he was on the four by 100 relay team. Yep. He was a long jumper. I mean, this guy has athletic traits. Yep. Um, so that's why I said, I think there's a lot to unlock here. Um, you know, I think that he's – I like the player. I, You know, I guess what I'm trying to say, I think he's the kind of guy that you could draft, line up at defensive end, and he'll be a really good player for you. Let me ask you a question. Who do you think is a, is a better prospect? Mm, okay. Okay. Quiddy Pay or Cleveland Farrell? Hmm. Coming out. I'm yeah, talking about coming out. Sure. Coming out. I, I would say it would probably be Quiddy Pay. If I if memory serves, I'm trying to think back on terms of how I've and I would Cleveland. too. Yeah, and I, I would I, too. And I know you know I didn't view Cleveland as a as a top five pick. I know he went, ended up going four overall. Um, but I did I did like him, and I thought he was a well rounded player. And I I think that's an interesting comparison because when I watched Cleveland Farrell, I never imagined him as like a you know. A, for whatever it is, a multiple Pro Bowl type player. I didn't see him as that right. quality of impact starter, but I thought he'd be a really good, reliable player. And I guess that's kind of how I view Pay, but I think he's probably just got a little bit more upside overall. See, I agree. I agree. I, I you know, and again, I'm not talking about where guys are drafted. Of course, of course, always drafted with the fourth pick, and that's irrelevant. Yep. You know, we're, we're comparing guys as to how we evaluate them coming out. Yep. Yep. Um, I think Pay has a little more to unlock in his game as he continues to progress. All right, so another guy that's got plenty to unlock is Jason Owe from Penn State, uh, a guy just dripping with traits. Uh, studied him over the summer from 2019 when he was a backup. Have not done the 2020 film yet, and I know I you, you dug into it a little bit, so I'm interested to kind of yeah. get your thoughts. Uh, I know he finished the year with no sacks, but what did the film show he, He's He has every trait you want. Yeah. Quickness, twitch, bend, short area burst, change of direction. I mean, this kid's an athlete, jumps off the film. The problem is for him at this point – and now you get into that discussion and everybody is going to look at it differently is he has a pretty meaningful learning curve in terms of understanding and executing how to rush the quarterback with technique, nuance, detail, mm. you know, just cause he doesn't have a lot of experience. I mean, the kids played what uh, 20 games, played 20 games in college. And I don't think he started that many of them. Oh, yeah, he um, only started this year. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he played what uh, five games this year or exactly. something like that. Yep. Right. So, I mean, but there's so much there. I mean, 
few edge prospects moves move the way he moves. I mean, he's got twitch, bend. He's got he's got every athletic physical trait you want. And he flashed at times, you know, a swipe move to clear the edge. He's obviously got stride length and closing burst, you know, showed some speed to power at times. Um, very, I think he can be really effective as a looper in TE stunts because the flexibility and the burst and the length, mm. but he just needs to learn how to rush the quarterback. I, and, yep, you I, know, everybody will look at that differently. Uh, to me, like the profile that I think his defenders will always kind of point to uh, will be Donnell Hunter when Donnell Hunter was coming out of LSU. Who had one was, and a half sacks, I believe, in, in his career. That's it. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, and I, I, I really liked Donnell Hunter's film. And I was, yeah. I was a guy who felt really, really strong. Hey, I know the production wasn't there, but this guy's got a lot of traits. I feel that way about Owe, but it's, it's still a, it, that's a tough, yeah. that's a tough thing to, you know, to stick up for a guy who didn't have that level of production. You know, and it, I think that's a really good comparison. I didn't think of it so. That's a great comparison because Hunter was long, athletic. You could see the movement traits. This kid might even be more athletic. I think so. Uh, I think he's got more traits in his body for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Hunter was not a pass rusher at LSU, yeah. and he's become a really good pass rusher in the NFL. Mm. I want to ask you uh, real quickly before we get to our last guy, is there a position that a lack of production worries you more so than others or ones where you're like, ah, oh, the, you know, the production really matters here uh, as opposed to another one? Well, you know, I think if you if, let's stay on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah. Um, I would say linebacker because if you're not making tackles, and again, you still have to look at every play of and course. see where other tackles are being made. Yep. But I think if you're a stacked linebacker and you're not making tackles, I, I think you got to really look at that carefully. Yeah. Because you're right in the middle of the field. Yep. You know, there's going to be plays to be made in the middle of the field. And if you're not making plays and tackles as a linebacker in the middle of the field, then I think that's cause for concern. Interesting. All right. Last question for you. Would you agree with that by the way? I think that, I think that's fair. I think, and looking around at at certain positions, like uh, even like corner, I feel like that's a position where, uh, where production travels with you. You know, I feel like if if you are not a productive guy in terms of being able to look and find, locate and find the football, make a play on the football uh, down the field, that's a that's a tough trait to kind of learn and pick up. So that, right, that right. does kind of give me some uh, concern. Well, there. That would be another I thing. remember speaking to um, who was I speaking to years ago, going back um, with a defensive coach saying that if a guy does not make any interceptions throughout, you know, sort of his career and you know, college, high school, the whole deal, yeah, he's not going to start making them in the NFL. Yep. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. the guy that uh, that really kind of bucked that for me was Marlon Humphrey because I remember watching yeah. Marlon Humphrey at Alabama. He did not have uh, you know all the tricks in his bag in terms of being able to lo- locate late and find the football and play right. it. But uh, I'll tell you what, like watch him in Baltimore, like he doesn't necessarily need to in the way that he's used in that scheme. They play him in the slot so often. He's not att- attacked vertically where you know he's out of phase and has to find the ball late. So comes back to to how you're used as well. Yep. Um, ultimately in the NFL. Uh, last question for you. Getting back to pass rushers. Is there uh, a guy that when you've been watching players, you're like, man, like I haven't seen a lot of talk about this guy, but but I really, really like his film. Yeah, there is. And and again, you know, as you and I do this, we don't care where guys get drafted. Um, Patrick Jones from Pittsburgh, who I watched last summer and then I watched this year. Mm. Um, And I really like this kid. And when I say really like, you know what I mean? I don't think he should be a top 10 pick. Um, I just think he's really intriguing. I thought he showed meaningful improvement from 2019 to 2020. Um, I think he checks a lot of the boxes. He's got good size. Uh, He's got length. He's got some natural quickness off the snap. He knows how to use his hands. 
He's got speed to power. What the reason he's not a top 20 guy is he's not truly bendy and explosive. You don't look at him and go, wow, you know, he's not that guy. But he does have burst to the quarterback. Um, I thought his 20 tape showed uh, better ability to play off contact. Um, I think that enhances his projection and transition to the league. Um, I think he's a good run defender. You know, I think he's a higher level edge prospect. You know, whatever that means, he's he's another guy who's a clear 4-3 guy. He's not a stand-up guy. He's not a linebacker. You can certainly move him inside and sub fronts. Um, you can use him as a joker, which they did at, at Pitt uh, in 2020 at times. So he's a player I like. And as I said, he may not come in the league and you're going to go, wow, he got 14 sacks. But I just think he's going to be one of those, like we just talked about Cleveland Farrell. You know, right. I think yep. Patrick Jones is is in that category. That makes sense. I could see that. And when you talk about lack of production, that is not an issue with uh, with Jones. He, he's no, no, found no. his way to the backfield for sure. No, he's I really liked his game. I mean, yep. you know, like I said, because he's not a purely explosive guy, friend, you're not going to go. Wow. You know, and I know I, I think I saw him a little in a little higher degree than you did, but I think he's a good football player. No doubt. Well, Greg, uh, this has been fun. We'll be back here next week. We'll break down another six players or so. Thanks so much for joining us here. Thanks, man. It's time for Mr. Relevant. Well, excited to welcome into the show for the very first time, Eric Crocker, uh, former NFL defensive back, bounced around the Arena League as well, uh, had a lot of success. You can follow him on Twitter just like I do, at Eric underscore Crocker. You can follow his work over at the Crocker Report. Eric, thanks so much for joining us here on the Journey to the Draft podcast. Oh, man, thanks for thanks for having me on. So I want to talk about uh, how you view these top corners because you recently uh, posted your thoughts on, I believe it was the top four or five guys. And so uh, before we talk about them individually, um, so you stacked them, J.C. Horn from South Carolina at number one, Virginia Tech's Caleb Farley, number two, Patrick Sertan at number three, Asante Samuel Jr. at number four. And before we kind of get into each guy's on, on the individual basis, I just want to, when you look at that group as a whole, do you say like, oh, this is a great group, a lot of really talented players? Are they very scheme specific? Is that kind of how you view all of them, or is it uh, like, what's your overall feeling on the on the top heap of this cornerback class? Yeah, just a really, really a really good class. Um, I, I feel like I like, especially like the top three. I mean, I was really high. I think I view it's kind of hard because I, I kind of mix and match a little bit. But like C.J. Henderson, he still might would be the CB one in this class. Yep. Um, but I really like J.C. Horn, and then I think I would have a Cuda, and then the rest would kind of follow as suit. Got it. Um, it, it to, overall, I mean, just even after, like, the top four guys that I have, I still have to find, figure out who's my fifth guy. Sure. But even after that, I think there are a lot of guys that are really talented, and I think just from that standpoint, I like this class a little bit more than I did the previous class. Interesting. Yeah, and I, I want to start getting into some of these guys and, and why you have them stacked the way you do. And I guess we'll start uh, right at the top with J.C. Horn. And I, I find it awesome that you have him at number one because everybody, it's been, you know, uh, oh, the top two guys are Sertan and Farley in some order. So what is it about J.C. Horn that stands out to you that puts him above those two guys? So I had a buddy that I, I played with on the New York Jets. And, you know, he, every once in a while, he'll DM me. He was uh, strength and conditioning for the South Carolina Gamecocks. And for the last few years, he would kind of give me a heads up on somebody. Now, now he's over in the, with the L.A. Rams now, so he can't give me that heads up. But uh -huh. previously, he would just tell me, like, hey, you know, I know you're into the draft and stuff like that. 
look at this guy. And every time he's never steered me wrong, he told me about Debo Samuel and the season he was going to have and how he was going to be viewed as a prospect and how his game translated to the NFL. And he also told me things like, hey, be weary of this. You know, mm -hmm. he told me about D, uh, Debo's weight, that it can kind of balloon and go up and down and that can lead to some injuries. That has happened, right? Sure. Um, he told me about uh, Brian Edwards. And obviously, like, he started to be viewed in a different light as a prospect, but, you know, not being able to compete at the, uh, the combine. And then that first year with the Raiders kind of dealing with injuries, it was a little weird. But then he also told me about J.C. Horn. He was like, hey, everybody's talking about our big corner, the 6'4 kid. Yep, Israel Bukwabo, like, yeah. But he was like, J.C. Horn, that's our guy. And he was like, crap. From day one, he stepped into that locker room. He was the alpha guy. Everybody followed him. He was the leader of the secondary as a true freshman. Hmm. So when you hear things like that, it's like, okay, this is somebody that has some good uh, stuff to him. And then you hear about the pedigree of him. Oh, by the way, he's Joe Horn's son. So you hear that. And now my thing is sometimes when you hear about like guys who their, you know, player, their dads or whatever played professional sure. football. I was like, is he hungry? Is he as hungry as the guys that maybe had to struggle a little bit more growing up or whatever? I don't know his upbringing or anything. But when it comes to J.C. Horn and you watch him on the field, he is just as much of an alpha dog on the field as he is off the dog. So that's the first thing that kind of jumped out to me, like his mindset. Because I, I try to look at what can you correct? What can you fix? And what are guys kind of born with? Their movement skills, their mindset. Those are things, it's hard to shape that later down the line. Yep. Uh, and when I looked at him, just the way he was able to like move, his transition, his feet, the how big he played, his, his, his size, his aggressiveness, that dog. And then his mindset to take on different type of challenges, to shadow guys, to go follow. Like, hey, I'm going to guard Seth Williams all game. That's their best receiver. I'm going to guard him all game. I'm just going to erase him from the game. Now, Seth did have a good catch early on, but that didn't change the way that J.C. Horn played that game. Eventually had two interceptions, forced another interception off of a pass breakup, showed the movement skills. I mean, even that, because you can look into interceptions and things like that, how he got his interception, uh, a route that was coming across from the other side, yep. him peeling off of a guy and undercutting and picking it off, like those type of things. Like, just the way that he plays, and that showed up in every single game, the aggressiveness, the 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 feet, the him challenging, his physicality. Now, there were some times like he would miss a tackle and whatnot, but overall, he showed a different level of like tenacity than some of the other guys and just like his relentlessness. So there was a lot that I just really liked that jumped off and things that you can't, I can't coach this, I can't teach this. I can teach technique, and I thought his technique – it was hit or miss. Like his feet sometimes were a little bad at the line of scrimmage. So he wasn't as technical as like a Patrick Sertain. But even then it was like, he's so scrappy. He just gets the job done. So it was like, yeah, my feet are bad at the line of scrimmage at the start. You know, I'm kind of open up or whatever, but at the end of the game, at the end of the play, I broke up a pass. Mm. Now, you know, everybody has their cons. Is he somebody who I just always want playing off? Like, no, but I thought even against Alabama, he gave up a touchdown on the slant, but there was also another slant from off coverage where he backpedaled and broke on the slant and knocked the ball away. So just to kind of see a guy with that size, that type of feet to be able to challenge a guy like Devontae Smith at the catch point from that standpoint, I thought that was really good. So there was just so much that he had to offer and his upside might not be elite, like a guy we'll talk about, like Caleb Farley, but just what he brings and the things that you can't teach and what he has and what he's going to bring in day one to an NFL locker room, I think those are things that's like, yeah, this is CB1. So, like, for two, there are two traits that you brought up that I felt, you know, when I look at the corners, that I'm like, all right, 
these are the the must-haves, and one is competitiveness, and two is ball skills. And so, uh, watching him from 2019. Saw plenty of competitiveness. I loved his tenacity up at the line of scrimmage. Uh, I thought that he competed throughout the route. He was impacting the catch point. But he can't, the big knock on on JC coming into the year was, oh, he, he doesn't have any interceptions yet. And you talked about uh, you know that Auburn game. I believe he had two picks, and I think those were his first two interceptions of his career. Obviously, now that that production uh, question isn't going to be a question for him moving through. But let's say he did come out last year, and he, and he had that low level of production. How much would that impact for you? Is that something you were like, man, like that's you'd like to be able to see more production on the football? You know, it's a little tougher depending on the scheme that you're playing. Like yeah. you'll see a guy like Josh Jackson from Iowa where yep. he's playing in a predominantly off zone scheme. And those guys are typically going to get more interceptions because you can read more concepts from off. You can see the ball thrown and now you can make a jump on, on the ball and make a play and get an interception. Josh Jackson, mm-hmm. I think he like led the nation in picks that year. Yep. Eight. Or you see a guy like Caleb Ferry who plays a majority of his reps are from off coverage. So he too is able to kind of read more, you know, concepts and see the ball thrown and stuff like that. But when you're playing and a lot of, a lot of what you do is playing at the line of scrimmage. A lot of times you don't see the ball thrown, you see it really late. So it's a lot harder to really react and make a play on the ball, you know, and catch it that way. So, you know, just because of the scheme, I won't knock him as much for not having, you know, a high number of interceptions. You know, the biggest thing I want to see is just, you know, maybe like catch rate, right? Like, you know, are you competing at the catch point? That that would be the thing that I would look for more uh, with J.C. Horn. With something like ball skills, is that something over and not necessarily just to horn, but just in general when you're watching corners that uh, if a guy flashes the ability, you know, he's hey, he's out of phase, then he gets back hip to hip, he goes back, finds the ball late, climbs the ladder, makes the interception. Like if you see that once, are you just like checking the box like, all right, he's got it, he can, he can do it? Or do you like to be able to see it time and time again? Yeah, that's my thing. I mean, I always want to see more of what somebody can it can they do it? And, yeah, and once right. I identify that they can do it, I do look to see how consistent that is, even if it's not them coming down with the ball or anything like yep. that. But like how consistent because I, I watched uh Kelvin Joseph and we'll probably get to him, but I watched Kelvin jo- Kelvin Joseph and he had two picks in some of the games I watched. But then it was like those are the only two times I, I saw him touch the ball at all. Like there mm-hmm. weren't like the pass breakups that I'm really looking for, uh, you know, things like that. So, you know, I think people when they think of like ball skills. There's there's different type of things we're looking for. Like, does the guy have the ability to make plays on the ball? Yep. And then does he just or he just can't catch or whatever? Because there, there's right. kind of two two sides of how people are looking at. It. I think like when they're talking about Josh Jackson, oh, tremendous ball skills. But it's like, well, he has the easiest job as far as being able to see his ball skills because he's playing off and he's reading concepts and jumping it from that way. If you know, but that was his strengths. You know, yep. that's what he was good at. But it's easier to see that than a guy who primarily plays press man. You typically don't get to see a lot of interceptions, but is he still making plays on the ball at the catch point? And I think from that standpoint, when you look at a guy like J.C. Horn, he was. I've talked about this with uh, Marquand Manuel over on the Eagle on the Sky podcast about like, uh, you know, all the different aspects of ball skills and like just that ability to finish, like the hands part of it might be like the least important part of that. It's like maintaining that relationship uh, with the receiver, then trying to find the ball late. You start, you start stacking all those other aspects of that uh, and all those kind of outweigh it. So, let me, let's get to the next guy here. Let's go to Caleb Farley, a guy who's not played a ton of football at the, in the secondary high school quarterback, came to Virginia Tech as a receiver, made the move over the last couple of years. Uh, what did you see from studying his film? Oh, man, he was like a, a, a freak. Someone asked me last night to compare him to someone. And it's hard because he's, he's, he's a bigger guy, 
I don't think I saw I saw somebody's scouting report and they were like fluid. I don't think he's as fluid. His moves movement skills are a little choppy, but he is an extremely explosive athlete. Yep. And when the ball's in the air, he closes really fast. When a guy gets a step or two on him, he closes really fast. Um, you know, he his ability to close was something that I thought was really, really special. And a guy was like, Who do you compare him to? And I was struggling to find somebody. I'm like, you know what? I don't know who I compare him to from an overall standpoint of like just hey, he reminds me of this guy, but I will say his closing ability, and I'm okay, I'm not saying this is who this guy is. <laughs> of course. All right. But just his ability to close when the ball's in the air or when somebody has a step on him, it reminds me of like Deion Sanders. Mm. And like that's that's the only thing I could really compare it to from just seeing that like freaky burst, yeah. you know, of just being able to like close on something. Now, there are other aspects of his game that I have like, you know, kind of questions about, but from that ability, I thought that really jumped out. Um, you know, everybody wants to know like what kind of scheme he fits in and stuff. It's easy to see. Well, he played a ton of off coverage at Virginia Tech. I thought from that, and again, I'm talking about how well he closes when he puts his foot in the ground and, and um, goes down on the receiver. Um, doing that, it's like, well, the Broncos at nine or wherever they, or eight, wherever they're picking, that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, a team like that who he can press, I think he needs work there. Like, you know, we talked about him missing some time due to injuries, yep. um, being someone that was a converted receiver, uh, you know, those type of things. So they're, they're still, and then really just not having a whole lot of reps in general playing press because they didn't ask them to press a whole lot. I think he had like 15 or 19 press reps all yeah. 2019, something like that. Yeah, something crazy, right? So yep. it's something where he just not doing a whole lot. Now, again, we talked about with your ball skills and, you know, got to distinguish the difference between something that somebody can do and can't do. And I think he can become a good press corner. I think he has that ability. I think he has the feet and the, the speed and stuff like that, but he just has to get uh, more comfortable and more reps doing it. And I think he'll improve there. How would you compare him to CJ Henderson last year? He was a guy like when I watched Caleb last summer, maybe it was just because it was so close to, to the draft. And I was like, Oh, like, I think he does a lot of the same things as CJ. They both have like kind of that long lean build uh, that makeup speed for sure. Uh, how would you compare him to CJ? I, I still think he's a little bit more of a, a, a freakish bursty athlete, like, you know, from, from that standpoint. But obviously, I mean, even with C.J. Henderson, his ability to play catch up, you know, there was a play where Jamar Chase kind of had a clean release on him going up the yep. field in the, uh, in the LSU game. And he was able to really kind of get in phase and knock the ball away, uh, you know, chase him down from that standpoint. So obviously Henderson was somebody that had that uh, recovery speed. And, um, you know, even like you want to see C.J. Henderson's speed jump out, watch him chase down Debo Samuel on like a – it was like a 90-yard play. But he like – I mean, he closed yes. so quick. <laughs> that was something where, you know, when you talk about Farley, he has that same type of capability. I think C.J. Henderson from like a technical standpoint was a little more consistent. He still right. had his inconsistencies as well. Uh, he wasn't as consistent as like Jeffrey Okuda. But – um, I think he was a little bit more consistent and you, I think I, I felt like I knew a little bit more of what I was getting from him as opposed to uh, Farley, but they both have like kind of their different little strengths and weaknesses and whatnot. But yeah, comparing the two, I, I would say I, I could see that as from a, from just a, a build and athletic standpoint. I still think, I think Farley is a little bit bigger when mm -hmm. I watch a film yep. like CJ Henderson. I didn't know he was 6'1", 205. And when I do my evaluations, I don't look at anything first. Like I don't look at mm -hmm. height, weight, I don't look at, I don't try to look at any speed stuff. I don't try to look at um, any of their stats because I just kind of want their film to paint the picture of who they are for me. I like that. And then I, then I started to kind of build off of that. So I didn't know CJ Henderson when I was watching him. I didn't know he was 6'1", 205, <laughs> you know? So when he measured in at a combine, 6'1", 205, then ran 4'3", 9", I'm like, damn, 
that's some really good stuff. Because <laughs> the Farley, I think he, he on film, and again, I don't know how big Farley is. I haven't looked at that stuff yet. He looks bigger than CJ. I think he moves, his movements are a little bit bigger in the sense of like, I don't think he has quite as good of feet. Um, I don't think his change of direction is as good, but I think he makes up with some of that with kind of that bursty explosive ability. All right, so let's transition to the next guy. And, and coming into the fall, based solely off of 2019, Patrick Sertan was was my favorite of this group. Uh, I, lo- I loved him compared with Farley and with uh, with J.C. Horn. I loved all three players. I just liked Sertan a little bit more. So I'm interested to get your thoughts on what you like from Patrick Sertan and what you want to see uh, that could be a little bit better. All right, so I'll, again, um, okay, let's start off with what I like. Got it. I think he's probably the most consistent press corner that I've seen in recent years. Wow. Um, his ability to play at the line of scrimmage and stay square and be extremely patient and get hands-on, like, that's not something that's easy to do. Mm. Um, there are a lot of people that be like, oh, why are you going to line up and press and not get hands-on? And what people don't understand is it's hard. It's hard to consistently <laughs> get hands-on. Like, it's, you know, and you have to tell, I always have to tell them, press is an alignment. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's not a technique. Jamming is a technique. So those are two different things, and they don't have to go hand-in-hand like on that. every single play. Yep. And different type of receivers, you know, bigger receivers, easier to get hands-on. Smaller, shiftier, quicker receivers, harder to get hands-on. So when people talk about Devontae Smith, right? Oh, he's so skinny. People are just going to get hands-on. Like, no, those are the hardest guys to press. Because if you try so hard to press and you miss, your feet get stuck and that guy is gone. And then from there, your clock gets sped up and you're in chase mode. So, But when you watch Sertain, he was so good with consistently getting his hands-on. Uh I haven't, I haven't seen that where it looks almost effortless. Like when I first watched him, I'm like, man, I'm kind of getting bored of watching him. But then I realized, man, he's just so technically sound at the line of scrimmage. So from that standpoint, that's something obviously you can teach that, but I thought that was really good. That was good stuff. Um, there are a lot of questions about his deep speed. I don't have issues with his deep speed. I mean, I've seen him get beat um, down the field a few times, but I thought for the most part, he was, uh, he did a good job of running with guys, especially like even on reps where you don't see him targeted, but he's right. he's easily kind of running with a, a receiver down the field. He was a, like a 10, 7, 10, 8 guy in a hundred meter uh, dash in high school. So like, it's not a guy who's slow or anything like, like he can run. I think what people are seeing, and this is now, these are some of my issues with him. What people are seeing is he's not very sudden and he's not very twitchy. Mm. He kind of plays at one speed. So from that standpoint, does he have the recovery ability as a guy like Farley, right? Where he's just a freakish athlete. And he can just move and, and burst even if he kind of gets beat. I didn't see that. I saw sometimes where he would lose at the line of scrimmage. And once he lost, that just was what it was. Like right. there was no recovering or anything like that. Um, he probably would have to hope for like a late throw or a throw that's behind uh, a, a receiver. It was just... If, if he didn't win at the line of scrimmage, which he did a lot and very consistently, but but if he didn't, he would have a little bit of trouble being able to recover because he doesn't have that suddenness. He doesn't have that twitchiness. Now, with that, he played in the slot a lot at, at Alabama, which is good, right? You you want to see, like, versatility, but it they didn't really ask a whole lot of him from that position. Like, it, mm. you know, it was like kind of like almost like a zone position within kind of a man scheme where he kind of would just kind of drop off and play in space. And if somebody ran with him and he had to carry that, he would, but they weren't asking him to just like, all right, we're going to ask you a bunch of times a game to be a press man guy in the slot and really challenge your movement and skill, uh, movement abilities in space. They weren't really asking those type of things of him. So 
Um, I kind of questioned, and it was weird, like, why, as much film as I watched on him, it was hard to kind of get a gauge on how, you know, how good are his hips? How good is his click and close? Um, how are his feet when he's challenged? When when somebody does something that he's not expecting, how well does he drive the other way or can he correct his um, false step or mistakes? Those are things that were really kind of hard to see um, on, on the film. But, you know, overall, I think suddenness, twitchiness, those type of things, it's almost something like you kind of either have or you don't. Yep. So I, I have a big issue, and this is more of a projection, that when he gets to the next level and you have these guys that are more nuanced route runners that you're facing week in, week out, and he faced a lot of terrific talent in the SEC. Of course. But I would have liked to see him against his receivers. Right. You know like, yep. I would have liked to see him against the Jerry Judys, the, the uh, you know, uh, Waddle, uh, Devontae Smith, um, you know, Henry Ruggs, I would have liked to see how well did he guard those guys who have a high end change of direction, good feet, explosiveness, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like him against Jerry Judy, like that's what I really want to see. So hopefully I can get some practice film. And if he and if he handled those guys very well, then I would have a much even higher opinion of him because his movement skills right now don't tell me that he's that guy. But, you know, maybe maybe uh, film against him will kind of show me that. If you get that practice film, uh, you know, yeah, hook a hook a guy up. Yeah, just, uh, <laughs> throw that out there. Uh, how would you compare him? Because uh, one guy I loved, Tre'Davious White, when he was coming out LSU, and they're built a little bit differently. White's a little bit smaller, but do you kind of view is, is that kind of a, a situation where you could see him having that kind of success and where, where he's playing in that kind of Sean McDermott level scheme? Yeah, um, it's funny that you mentioned Tre- so Tre'Davious White. That was like my first year of starting to be like, oh, my CB one. Like he yep. was my, and I didn't label it as CB one because I wasn't digging into the film sure. like that just yet. But I know I tweeted out, this is my favorite corner in the draft. Everybody's talking about, you know, Lattimore, Lattimore and was Conley that, yep. and those guys. I was like Tre'Davious White. That's my favorite guy. I watched him at the Senior Bowl. His ability to play inside, outside. I think White had a little bit better movement skills. And I would think, like, if you're kind of going off of just, like, scheme, the tougher thing is, you know, when, when, you, start, when you start talking about scheme, because White, he's in a perfect scheme for him. No I, don't, I don't think that White is just a shutdown corner. I think, you know, with what they ask him to do and that kind of cover four and too high scheme where, you know, they'll, they'll even play him at the line of scrimmage in four where he might have to run with a guy, but he can pass things off. I think that works for him. I think a system like that can definitely work for Sertain. The issues I have is if Sertain is primarily playing off and like a cover four, you know, I've seen it with, I've seen it with, uh, with JC Horn where he's backpedaling now and having to break down on a guy who's smaller, quicker, quicker, shiftier and him being able to make a play on the ball. Can Sertain do those same type of things? I've seen him off, but even when he was off, it was like, he's off, he's in the bail, and he's not playing with a lot of aggressiveness um, with the receiver. What I mean by that is like reading a guy down, having to really react to a guy running a curl route mm. while he's bailing off yep. and driving a pass, you know, or he's off and having to drive a dig or a slant, um, you know, and really squeeze it because, oh, if he throws it right now, like, this is my guy. Those are things that really didn't jump out to me on film. So there's just a lot of questions with his ability to play off. So again, I keep going back to the Broncos because their fans have been the most um, like the most active and asking me like, does this guy feel us? Does this guy feel us? <laughs> I, if I'm them, I probably would pass on Sartain. I wouldn't put him in a primarily uh, off zone type scheme. All right, last guy I want to ask you about, and that's uh, the number four guy on your list, Asante Samuel Jr. from Florida State. Uh, Eagles fans know his father well. Obviously playing here uh, in Philadelphia. Uh, what did you see from the younger uh, Asante Samuel? 
I think if he was a little bit bigger, he he'd be higher on my list. Mm. Um, you know, I'm not one that I, I you know, Denzel Ward was my CB1 when he was coming out. Jair Alexander was my CB2 when he was coming out. So I don't care so much about size. Yeah. Um, I just think this is just kind of a unique situation where you have these bigger guys that have these really good traits. Uh, when it comes to Asante Samuel Jr., um, re- you know, when I was watching his 2019 film, his play at the line of scrimmage, he was really shuffling out too far. And it was like, uh, he didn't really look comfortable in press. They left him out to the field. He was primarily playing in the field for the most part in some games. There were some games where I saw him kind of play a little bit of boundary, but mostly like a field corner where he was able to kind of play off in zone, play with his eyes, um, things like that. And then he actually, especially against Clemson, they would they took him out a lot of times when they got inside the 10-yard line. So I'm like, well, maybe they feel like he played small. So for everything that was telling me from that game and a few of those games in 2019, he was a slot nickel DB. Mm-hmm. But then I watched 2020 and – he was uh, playing all over. He was playing both sides of the field, where those field boundary. He played more press. He looked more comfortable in his press. Um, you know, I saw him make a lot of plays on the ball, getting hands in there, forcing interceptions, things like that. His click and close from either a back pedal or a bail was really good, where he was challenging uh, passes at the catch point and knocking them away. I think he has really clean feet. He gets in and out of his breaks extremely well, maybe better than anybody in this class where there's just no wasted steps. Uh, he tackled extremely well. There are some people like, who's the best tackler of this group? And I'm like, well, you know, you would think it would be one of these bigger guys. And yeah, they they tackle well. But I think when you talk about like how his willingness to kind of go out of his way to make a tackle and not care about how big somebody is, I think he, I think uh, uh, Sante Samuel was like the best tackling cornerback in this class. So there was a, there was really a lot. He got challenged in the open field with his movement skills. He was playing like eight yards off. And he was just playing it very honest, where it's like, I don't know which way this guy is going, but I'm just going to have to react. And the guy like jab left, jabbed right, then went corner. And he was able to mirror all those movements and close and it not look all weird. He didn't speed turn. He didn't do things like that, which mm-hmm. you see like uh, Farley do random speed turns, random things where you can tell like, oh, his reaction isn't all that great. Samuel, Asante Samuel Jr., he didn't have those type of issues. So yep. there was really a lot to like about him. If he had maybe a little bit more size, and I'm not one that cares so much about size. I think like, Hey, if you can cover, if you can do these things and I really like you, the way I talk about him, I feel like I should have him higher, mm. but right now it's kind of hard to put him over those guys. But maybe the more I watch, the more I really start digging in it, maybe I will have him higher, but there's definitely a lot to like about him with his versatility. Um, I like a lot of what I saw. So you've been really generous with your time. I want to ask you one more question. Is there a, a guy or two that you've studied so far? Uh, you know, I know you still have a lot more guys that you want to get through as well, but has there been a guy or two you're like, man, like this guy's a good player. I don't know why he's not being talked about more. Or, you know, maybe he, you know, this is a guy, I feel really good about his ability to transition to the NFL. You know, um, I, I'd say there's some unique guys. Uh, there was a kid I watched from ah, what, what, Appalachian State. No. Yeah. Corner. I can't think of his name right now, but he was number eight. I've only watched one game so far. Um, Cornerback from Appalachian State. He reminded me a lot of uh, Jeffrey Okuda. That's who he kind of looked like on film. uh, Was it Shamar Jean Charles? Yes, him. Gotcha. Okay. Charles. I've only watched one game. I have not done him at all. I like. I. I just know he was first team all conference this year. That's all I got on him. Yeah. This is all. This is all virgin territory for me. Let me hear it. (laughs) I, I. I liked a lot of what I saw from him with just his ability. He. He looked exactly like Jeffrey Okuda. Now, maybe not like the high end, um, you know, Jeffrey Okuda, like obviously like wasn't like a super speedster, but right. you know, he, you could still tell that he was a really good athlete, you know, jumped out the, uh, you know, 
room with the uh you know 40 inch vertical leap and stuff like that like those his uh ability to kind of read down stuff was really good he reminds me a lot and i, I want to put out a breakdown of him because somebody just recently in the last few days brought him to my attention i'm like damn this guy can't play well but again that's only one game right um, another guy is uh the kid benjamin st juice st juice from, from minnesota from, yeah. from minnesota um obviously he did a really good job at the senior bowl uh, a guy like him that's you know six three two hundred plus pounds um, I thought his ability to play off and look comfortable um, breaking down on routes and stuff like that, to play press and be physical at the line of scrimmage. I thought he had solid hits for his size. He reminded me a lot, and you know, I'm a 49er fan, but he reminded me a lot of um, Akilah Witherspoon. Okay. Witherspoon had like that, that type of ability where it was rare, really good movement skills for somebody that is really long and lengthy. Pause. So, um, you know, those were things that I really like to see from St. Juice. He's somebody, and again, when on my little rankings and what the little tweet I put out, I said, hey, these this this order isn't random. He was the next guy up. So mm-hmm. he might be a top five guy for me. I'm not sure yet. I still have to watch guys. I haven't watched Greg Newsom. Um, and I know a lot of people like him. I did watch Kelvin Joseph, and I'm not nearly as high on him as other people at all. There's just far too much inconsistency. I see a lot of ability. He reminded me a lot of CJ Henderson, but like with his ability to just like his change of direction, his movement skills, things like that, like that stuff was really good. His feet clean, all that, but just terrible eyes. And his eyes were so bad. Like, and I said it in my video breakdown on Patreon, he might have the worst eyes I've ever seen from a prospect where he does a lot of things really good, like as far as his ability, but there's so much inconsistency in his film when you really just watch him on a play to play basis um, not driving receivers out of his breaks, um, missing reads on in zone coverages, um, all these things that were just jumping out to me that really start with his eyes. So if he can clean his eyes up, then I might be talking about this guy in a different way because he does do things very well. But that was the one thing that was like, ah, it's so bad. Like, it, it, you know, and I, I use the word consistency and, you know, inconsistent and stuff. And all these guys, it's not going to be perfect, but it was so bad from an eye standpoint. Mm. I was just like, ah, I have to kind of pass on him being a, a high on my list guy right now. But if he can clean that up, I could see him being somebody that's a good NFL player. Uh, you'll be interested to know. So Benjamin St. Juice first popped on my list. This was March of 2017. All right. This is when wow. he was he was with Michigan at this point. And yeah. Michigan, they had like a spring combine where they're underclassmen or whatever. And they put out these numbers like, hey, yeah. And you take all this stuff with a grain of salt. But they put out uh, the top performers at, the, at each position. And I see that they put out the six three corner, who was you know he was just around two hundred pounds at this point. He went sub four in the short shuttle, and he was like sub six eight in the three cone. And I'm like, whoa, all right, all right. I got I don't know, you know this kid's yeah. a freshman. I got to put this kid on my list just to, to to stash him away. And you know he, he never really got uh, played too much in Michigan. He ends up transferring. He goes to Minnesota. Uh, but as soon as he popped up for the senior ball, I was like, all right, like the, the the cream rises to the top sometimes in that position in terms of movement skills. So listen, when, when you say things like that, like, you know, and I've kind of been getting, I don't want to say in this battle with analytical, you know, Twitter and stuff like that, but there is kind of this, you know, film guys versus analytics sure. guy. And me, I don't know. All I know is film. So I'm not knocking any way that anybody else does anything. They knock my way of doing things, but I go <laughs> off of the film. And hey, if any of anybody that's an analytical guy, if you guys are listening right now, please reach out. Like, I would love to learn it. Like, I, I want to give the best product possible but saying that those things that you said i just talked about how i felt like he had rare movement skills yep. for somebody his size so you saying 
that he had those type of numbers that he did with the short shuttle and, and the three cone and stuff like that, it matches what no the doubt. analytical people would see as well. So yep. um, the, the eyes do work, y'all, you know, <laughs> but yeah, I would like to learn a little bit more about the analytical side of things. Uh, real quick, uh, Eric, before we let you go, just t- tell us, you mentioned your Patreon. Uh, give, give us a plug. Oh, what's the stuff that you're, you know, that you're putting out uh, and how can people go find it? Yeah. So, um, patreon.com slash crock talk. All right. And my last name is Crocker. So crock talk, uh, it is, it's been fun, man. It's been building up. I just started like last week and I'm up to like almost like 40 patrons. Um, you know, I put out really good in-depth video breakdowns, you know, I'll discuss things in certain plays with, with, with guys and, and like, you know, it's like 11 minute, uh, kind of like a film study of me just talking about like basically what we're doing right now, but I'll spend like 11 minutes on one guy and there'll be, um, film, uh, video evidence of the things I'm talking about, like the inconsistencies, the eyes, all those type of things. I've also done like technique breakdowns where, you know, I'll talk about the, you know, importance of like staying square and I'll show examples of like a Tyson Campbell and, you know, why he's able to do this and that and why this actually worked. Um, as the season goes on in the off season, like I'll get into like scheme fits and stuff like that. So say if the Eagles, you know, draft, uh, you know, JC Horn, you know, I'll put together, you know, videos of, you know, Eagles and what they do and then match that up with what Horn does and how, you know, that's a perfect marriage. Or if it's not, if I don't think it's a good fit, um, you know, I'll also get into like matchups of the week. So like NFL, um, you know, if it's, you know, uh, Jalen Ramsey against uh, Hill, Tyreek Hill, I'll get into that matchup specifically and go through all the ins out. So a lot of fun stuff, man. Make sure you guys subscribe, patreon.com slash crock talk. I just got into it and I have a great time with it. So um, I'm, I'm excited about that. Well, this, is, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for joining us here uh, and shedding some light on these top corners. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for joining us here on the Journey to the Draft podcast. All right, anytime, man. Now it's time for Draft Buzz. All right, well, I hope you guys enjoyed that segment there uh, with Eric Crocker. Now, as I welcome in my good friend, Ben Fennel. Ben, uh, let's break down the mock draft. We did uh, DJ's big board last week. We're going to get back into the mock draft roundup business here this week. We're going to go to Trevor Sikama's mock draft, which you can go find on the Draft Network. I believe it's a two-round mock draft. We're going to focus mainly here on uh, round one. And the first question I'm going to ask you here as we go through this mock draft here, Ben, your favorite pick in the top 12. So uh, of those first handful of picks, what was the pick that really stood out to you as uh, just a great fit? Well, I love seeing uh, four of the first five picks go quarterback. And one of those teams wasn't initially in the top five, and that's the 49ers moving up to number three to take Trey Lance at North Dakota State. I just love Trey Lance in a run-first style scheme like Kyle Shanahan implores out there in San Francisco. Dominate the run game, get him on the move, with rollouts, play-action boot, half-field reads, and then working in some more quarterback runs more improvisation, more play extension uh, than they've gotten out of the, you know, the Bether, Nick Mullins, uh, Jimmy G era. So I like that fit. And you have to remember a lot of these quarterbacks had dominant run games in college were RPO offenses. So don't expect these guys to go and shotgun point and shoot offenses and be successful. I think they need to be products of their scheme products of their offense. Uh, and it's going to take a, a, you know, a balanced, uh, balanced offensive approach to get the most out of them. I won't go into that selection yet because I'm actually going to bring it up uh, a little bit later here in the segment. But but for me, uh, mine was actually a few picks later. That was the number 10 selection by the Dallas Cowboys uh, getting cornerback Patrick Sertan. As I mentioned uh, with Croc earlier in the show, uh, I love Patrick Sertan. I think he's a really, really interesting corner. And I think in a scheme like Dallas's, when we're, again, uh, you're bringing in a, a new, sch- new scheme under Dan Quinn, uh, you know, heavy cover three, single high, a lot of zone coverage. 
I feel like he really fits uh, that kind of scheme. He plays opposite his former teammate there and Trevon Diggs. Obviously, I think he's a good fit for that level of scheme as well. So, uh, Sertan, Diggs, two, co- two former Alabama corners, uh, gives him a nice uh, set of in the secondary there. It really kind of sets that defense up for success. And I, I love the scheme fit there. Let's get to the next one here. And let's take through uh, the, uh, the pick outside the top 12 that made the most sense in your eyes. I'll let you uh, kick things off here. Well, I think this guy just kind of fits the aesthetics of the team. And I think this Los Angeles Chargers team are a couple of good offensive linemen away from making a serious contending run, not only at that Kansas City Chiefs in the AFC West, but for a Super Bowl themselves in Justin Herbert's second year. I think they have a really good defense now under Brandon Staley's tutelage as head coach, but offensively. Just looking for that left tackle, the future to pair with Justin Herbert. And they're going to take Christian Derisaw from Virginia Tech, who I think is a little bit more of a gap man style run blocker, more of a vertical displacement. He's strong. He's burly. And that fits what the Chargers have done in the past. A lot of inside zone, a lot of duo, a lot of gap stuff. Um, maybe not the most athletic guy, but he's a guy that had no problem getting up to the second, third levels or racing linebackers and safeties, maybe getting out in the screen game. He's a guy that may not look athletic, but I think he's much more of a light footed dancing Panda type of tackle than his profile would suggest. But, um, I just think he'd be a great fit for the charters there at left tackle. I like that. And it would, I think he's a, an interesting player, certainly to keep in mind, um, you know, with the, the new offensive staff coming in and, and, you know, what will that scheme look like with Justin Herbert? Uh, I think that'll be a lot of fun just to kind of project uh, what that system. And offensive coordinator, Joe Lombardi. Uh, yep. Don't forget. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I'm going to go to the next one here. Uh, the Patriots at 15 take another player that we actually talked about in the last segment uh, with Croc, and that's J.C. Horn from South Carolina. We, what do we know about Bill Belichick and that defensive scheme? It's a ton of man coverage. You see a lot of press man coverage. That's the thing. I mean, J.C. Horn does that as well as anybody in this class. And so uh, just getting him up on the line of scrimmage, he can play some off man as well. But uh, his competitiveness, his athleticism, his instincts in man, uh, I think will show up really, really well uh, up in New England. I think that's a, gr- a great fit in the first round. And I think they did a pretty good job with that, you know, previous South Carolina corner. What was his so. name? Stefan Gilmore, former yeah, defensive right. player of the year. So a uh, pretty good track record out there in New England. No question. All right, let's get to the uh, most outside the box pick. So, uh, you know, a selection where like, man, like, you know, uh, that would surprise me or we don't quite understand the fit or uh, just something we don't often see that, you know, maybe makes sense to us, but we don't often see that kind of selection. You know, I'm going to take this one just a slightly different direction. So okay. work with work with me here. All right. All right. I'm going to go with the Tennessee Titans taking edge rusher Jalen Phillips out of the University of Miami, okay. who I think, you know, I really like his value. I think he's one of the more complete pass rushers in this class. But what are some of the issues with Phillips? A little bit of the off the field stuff, some outside interest, obviously the injury history that forced him to retire initially from UCLA, some concussion history. And the Titans, I think, are just looking for a little more stability with their first and second round picks. Obviously, yep. Harold Landry came in injured with that knee injury. Jeffrey Simmons, uh, obviously, with the ACL, ended up you know being an injured rookie coming right off the bat. Isaiah Wilson last year out of Georgia, pretty well documented that you know that rookie campaign did not go as planned. Some yep. off the field stuff, some outside interest stuff. So to go with another you know kind of guy with some injury concern, with some off the field stuff. As much as there are trends, I think they're looking to go the other way with those trends and say, you know what, we need a safer player here, someone ready to go, somebody that checks all those boxes on the field, off the field, medically. Um, so while they do have a track record taking this style, 
I think they're ready to go the other direction for him. So I love that you presented it this way because, uh, and that's the beauty. We talk all all the time about connecting the dots. We're going to do it here in a second. But when you look at trends, the the beautiful thing about trends is like, hey, this is a team that likes to go this direction. But if that direction is not working, a great example: Pittsburgh Steelers, Kevin Colbert. You know, early on, they did not prioritize athleticism as much. And the 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 pick that everybody points to was Jarvis Jones. Hey, super productive, but you know, did not have the height, weight, speed profile that would lead to NFL success. And then did not have NFL success, struggled because of that athleticism. So what do we see after that? That seemed to be like a little bit of a breaking point for the Steelers in terms of how they kind of targeted, especially defensive players, especially defensive players in the front seven. All these guys were hyper-athletes, TJ, TJ Watt, Bud Dupree, Devin Bush, you know, go on and on and on, Stephon Tewitt, Cam Hayward. All these guys were really athletic players for their size. And so uh, you may look at Jalen Phillips and say, all right, well, on one hand, it's you know, this is something that we've you, you outlined it. Bunch of red flag players. Will they do it, do it again? Or are they burned by Isaiah Wilson? And now they're going to go the opposite way. I think it's an interesting one to follow for sure going into this draft. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I just think that, you know, I feel like Jeffrey Simmons is a good player. Landry is a good player. So I'm not diminishing who they are as NFL players, but more of the trajectory and the style of prospect they selected and how he entered into the NFL in those first couple of months and getting on, on the field initially. I just think they're ready to kind of zig since they've been zagging. And at the, at the end of the day, what we talk about is the number one need for that team is is pass rush. And you just talked about a couple defensive linemen that have not worked out for them because mm-hmm. uh, if they have, we wouldn't be talking about defensive line being such a big need uh, for that team. So I think it's perfectly fine to bring that up. For, to me, uh, the outside-the-box pick would be the Jets trading up for a running back at number 16. So moving up to take Najee Harris at 16 overall, that would blow my socks off uh, if that was the, <laughs> the pick that, that ended up happening. Uh, you know, Jets might trade up. Obviously, they've got extra capital uh, with the Jamal Adams deal. They try and make a move. That certainly makes sense. Uh, trading up t- for a back, uh, that would very much surprise me. Uh, although, I will say, Najee Harris definitely fits the mold for the kind of player that Joe Douglas uh, would try and get. I think that definitely 100% uh, fits his style for sure. Um, yeah. Let's go. Let's get to the next one here. Favorite connect the dots pick. So well, let's, let's find some trends. What would be uh, your biggest one for, for this mock? I'm going to go with Notre Dame, Notre Dame left tackle Liam Eikenberg going to the Pittsburgh Steelers here. Yep. Um, obviously they took uh, Chase Claypool out of Notre Dame with their first selection last year in the second round, you know, just having that kind of ACC Midwest feel to them just fits the Steelers fits the NFC or excuse me, AFC North. Obviously, they've dipped to that well before, like Stephen Tewitt. But, you know, just look at the picks in the past in the first round. Devin Bush, Michigan, Big Ten, Midwest, outdoors. Terrell Edmonds, Virginia Tech, ACC, outdoorsy kid. T.J. Watt, Wisconsin, Bud Dupree, Ryan Shazier at Ohio State. I remember talking with Mayock, uh, telling me about their decision to take Le'Veon Bell in the second round of 2013. They were deciding between Le'Veon Bell and Eddie Lacy. Eddie Lacy never played a game under 50 degrees. And that was a big reason why they wanted Le'Veon from Michigan State, the Big Ten, several cold weather games, several slop games. They felt like he fitted, he fit the style of play and the expectations that the Steelers were going to have. And I just see that with Eichenberg. Um, I just think he's going to fit into that style and just, you know, he's already been wearing the gold. I think that's going to transition well out there to Pittsburgh. Uh, and they see, certainly are going to need a left tackle uh, with Villanueva hitting free agency. So I like that pick there. I mean, aren't there just players that you could just watch and say like, this guy feels like a player for this team, or he feels like, uh, you know, this, this kind of, he's a, Hey, he's an AFC North type of player. You know, it, 
there are certainly guys that fit that. You might watch a receiver and say, man, I could just see this guy, you know, for the Kansas City Chiefs and, you know, doing all the different things that Andy Reid asked them to do. Guys certainly have that kind of feel. You feel that watching film. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's get to uh, to mine here. And I'm going to go uh, with his teammate, Eichenberg's teammate, Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa, going to the Dolphins at 18. And I believe this was out of a trade down. Uh, I think that this makes a lot of sense. And, you know, we could talk through uh, Zayvon Collins. A lot of people will mock uh, him to the Dolphins. I think that, you know, you can go back and listen to the episode we did earlier this week and my friend Alan Pupar breaking down the Dolphins and some of the trends we've seen. They've definitely trended more towards bigger schools. And you, when you talk about, uh, you know, Owusu Kormo versus uh, Zayvon Collins, could that be a deciding factor between those two guys? And again, you, you, that's what happens ultimately. You talked about the the the, um, uh, the Eddie Lacy selection uh, with Le'Veon Bell. I think that that's a it's an interesting kind of decision there for the Dolphins if they decide they want they want to go linebacker. They parted ways with Kyle Van Noy. Part of that is because they have faith in Andrew Van Ginkle. But if they want to try and add a player at that position uh, here into the front seven, I think Owusu Koromoa uh, makes a lot of sense. That would be one uh, that I really liked. To, you know, in terms of uh, and, re- and really quick, pass. Fran. You know, just looking at the Dolphins' picks here, I'm seeing a lot of mocks going offense, offense to try to surround Tua with some more weapons, a backfield mate maybe even offensive line. I find the Dolphins selections in the first round to be some of the most diverse and unpredictable in mock drafts at this point. Mm. And I think Trevor's uh, obviously speaks to that going defense, defense. Several people have been all over the place with types of prospects, trade outs, trade ups, quarterback, skill players. It's one of the more unpredictable spots, in my opinion. Definitely. I mean, anytime you're your team with lots of draft capital, uh, you could go a lot of different directions in the mind. You have capital and you have some needs. So, yes. yeah, <laughs> exactly right. Uh, let's get to our, our favorite trade for both parties. A bunch of trades here in this first one. I'll, I'll kick this one off because it's one you talked about earlier. I love the trade with the 49ers trading up uh, with the Miami Dolphins. Uh, you know, the Dolphins got a bunch of picks, picks back. Uh, I mean, a ton of picks back. Uh, and then the the. 49ers get their quarterback. And I, I do love that idea of Trey Lance uh, in that offense. I think that would make a lot of sense uh, whether or not they moved on from Jimmy G in that scenario, or if they just want to let him play it out and give Lance the ability uh, to sit back and learn. Regardless, I think Lance could come in and play in that offense day one. I think he could certainly uh, find ways to have success for sure uh, for Kyle Shanahan. So uh, I do like that fit. I think it's a, a trade that makes sense for both. Uh, and again, going back to that segment with Alan Pupar earlier this week, uh, he had mentioned Dolphins, that's a team that will do everything they can to move out of that pick at number three. So uh, we'll see if that's the direction they ultimately go. Uh, what would be the trade for you that stuck out? Well, I'm going to go with the other top five pick, and that's the Panthers coming up to five to get Justin Fields out of Ohio State, but trading that spot with the Cincinnati Bengals, who obviously aren't in the market for a quarterback and certainly looking to field offers to get out of there. But the Bengals then are able to get Rayshon Slater and an early second-round pick that they turn into Eric Stokes and Landon Dickerson with their second-rounders. So to walk out with an early second-round pick and still get a top-10 caliber offensive lineman, whether he's the left tackle or guard of the future, I think the Bengals really just need more offensive line talent in that room. I don't think you need to be so worried about where guys are playing yet. They have needs. They have holes you know, across the board. I think Joan is a good player, a couple other nice parts in there, Michael Jordan, some other guys, but you need better players in that offensive line room. So to walk away with a Landon Dickerson, a Rashawn Slater, and a really nice press corner, Eric Stokes, that's a pretty good haul. And letting the Panthers come up, get Justin Fields, their quarterback of the future. I think that works out for both teams. 
I like it. Uh, I think that would be uh, certainly, we've talked about the connection there of, of Justin Fields to Carolina. Uh, certainly makes a lot of sense on a number of different levels. Uh, let's go to the Eagles selection here for Trevor. And he's got the Eagles staying put at number six and selecting Oregon left tackle Penne Sewell. And let's get into the blurb here from Trevor. Again, this is all from Trevor on the, uh, on the mock draft. And he said, maybe Howie Roseman will draft a wide receiver this early, but I doubt it, especially if an offensive line upgrade can be had. The Eagles plan to have Lane Johnson and Brandon Brooks back, hopefully Jason Kelsey too. They also hope health will be much more on their side in 2021. There is reason to believe they could go with Andre Dillard or Jordan Mailata as their left tackle, but why risk such a crucial offensive line spot on belief if a sure thing like Sewell is on the board? I don't think they would. So, uh, Ben, let's get into your thoughts. Penny, we haven't really talked about the option, the, the uh, idea of Penny Sewell falling to the Eagles at six and if they were to pull the trigger, what, what would be your thoughts on uh, Penny Sewell falling that far into the draft? And uh, what do you think of him overall as a prospect? Well, you know, uh, I think he's obviously an intriguing prospect with a lot of upside. He's young and tons of potential. And uh, he might be an offensive line prodigy at this stage. But um, the f- the phrasing of saying, you know, spot on belief, if a sure thing like Sewell's on the board, I just don't know if there are sure things. There's no, yeah, um, so there's no such thing as a short. So thing. I, you know, I balk a little bit at the phrasing there and, you know, they were more than comfortable in spending first round capital on Andre Dillard to be that left tackle of the future. We've seen very little out of Andre Dillard thus far in his young career uh, due to injuries, but I'm not willing to say he can't still be that and be the guy that made them take him in the middle of the first round just two young years ago. So uh, as much as I would like to see Penny Sewell, be the left tackle on any team in the NFL. I think he's going to be a really nice piece. It's really weighing your current roster, your other needs, and you know, the weighing uh, potentially some positional depth later in the draft. We haven't done our positional previews yet in terms of talking about the offensive line, but uh, to give us a little bit of a teaser, how do you view Sewell against the rest of this tackle class? There are some people that view he's far and away number one guy. There are some that say, oh, well, you know, I actually like Slater a little bit more. How, how do you kind of view uh, his separation from the rest of that group? What he's put on tape is very intriguing for a 19-year-old to win the Outland Trophy as the best offensive lineman. And um, I thought he checked all the boxes as far as what you're looking for for an offensive line, particularly a left tackle prospect uh, at the next level. So, you know, I I think his slotting and evaluation and analysis is warranted. It's just a matter of what the learning curve is, if he still has some development because he's so young, if he's going to be ready to go day one. You know, there's other guys with better bodies of work and more experience, but they maybe showed you some flaws because they played a lot more. So, mm. you know, there's guys like Penny Sewell that only played really one year or Walker Little that's been on the field in two years that make this really tough to evaluate. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a really interesting case study just watching this class as a whole uh, and how they progress, you know, how teams approach it. Uh, we've talked about that throughout the course of the process, but it's going to be a lot of fun for sure. Well, Ben, uh, this has been fun as always. We'll be back early next week to break down uh, the rest of this class. I think we're doing linebackers early next week uh, right here on the Journey to the Draft podcast, and we'll talk to you next week. Now it's time to hear from you, the fans, in the Draft Mailbag. All right, well, great stuff there uh, from Ben. We've had a, a three great guests today, but we're going to wrap things up with three questions from you guys at home. We're going to start things off with JRod814, who left a five-star review on our Apple Podcast page saying, hey, friend, really enjoy the show and all the work that you do. I was wondering where you would rank 
Jalen Hurts in this 2021 quarterback class. Obviously, he would be after Trevor Lawrence. Uh, and then maybe talk about your scouting report on him from last year and what you saw from him in four games that he played this year. Thanks so much. Go Birds from Jared. So, Jared, that's a good question. And I, and I do love having those conversations, kind of comparing guys uh, over multiple draft classes, especially when they can be stacked together. And I think when you look back at Jalen Hurts, look, there's a reason why he was a late second-round pick. I thought he showed starting potential throughout the course of his NFL career. He's got the size. He's got arm talent. He's got athleticism. We saw that uh, in his limited time as a starter here in 2020 as a rookie. He needed to get a little bit better from the mental side of the game, getting through progressions, uh, being able to throw with anticipation, things of that nature poison the pocket. I thought he showed flashes of that as a rookie, and he showed good accuracy as a rookie, which uh, that was really good to see. He does, he needs to get better in some of those areas, but guess what? That's an area that a lot of young quarterbacks uh, have to get you know have to get better at. I think when you try and compare him, uh, number one to you know this quarterback class. I guess you look at that from two different ways, right? Do we compare Jalen Hurts, the prospect coming out of Oklahoma, or do we compare it to Jalen Hurts, what we know of him right now, right? Because where he is right now. We've seen him. We've seen him operate in the NFL. We've seen him have uh, a modicum of success. We, we can expect that that would be at least his floor, right? So I think when you look at Jalen Hurts, you look at him and say, okay, let's look at him as just the prospect last year, a year ago from now, uh, to what he would compare to Zach Wilson and Justin Fields and uh, you know to Mac Jones and uh, certainly to Trey Lance as well out of North Dakota State. I would say that he would probably be in that same bucket to me as Mac Jones, and they're very similar kinds of players. I think when you look at Mac Jones, he's not going to do some of the things athletically that Jalen can do, but uh, he's going to operate from the pocket a little bit better. He's a little bit more he's a little bit more advanced in terms of uh, his touch at all three levels, his ability to kind of get through progressions. It was a very quarterback-friendly offense where both guys, right, they did, did things a little bit differently at Oklahoma than they did at Alabama, but both guys were really set up for a lot of success with really talented players all around them. So uh, certainly you, you could make that com- kind of comparison. I think both guys you would look at and say, okay, you need to try and find a really good set of circumstances around them to reach a very high level of play early in their career. I'm a big believer in the fact that when you look at how quarterbacks are able to find success in the NFL, especially over their first contract, not just year one, not just year two, but four years, five years, even going to six years, a lot of it has to do with situation. And there was a great tweet uh, from Mike Renner from Pro Football Focus, a guy who's been on this show uh, a number of times. And uh, I'm pulling up the tweet right now, but I thought it, it's a, it really kind of plays to what I'm discussing. And I think when you look at uh, just at the quarterback position, the situation changes every single year. And this was this is the tweet uh, from Mike. He said, it's interesting how quickly perception changes for young quarterbacks. After 2018, you would have been crazy to have Josh Allen and Lamar Jackson over Baker Mayfield. After 2019, you would have been crazy to have Baker Mayfield and Josh Allen over Lamar Jackson after Lamar's uh, MVP year. And then after this season, you'd be crazy to have Lamar Jackson and Baker Mayfield over Josh Allen, right? It's so crazy, uh, the perception of guys and ultimately how guys are able to find success. It's going to be a lot of that is determined not just by their own personal development, but how they're coached, the scheme that they're playing in, their supporting cast, you know, their, their durability of players around them. All of that can impact every position on the field, but certainly can, infect, uh, can impact the quarterback. So I think when you look at, at all of these players, all of them have the ability to be a franchise quarterback. Are all these guys going to be able to step in right now and say, and you know, put on the Superman cape and say, all right, all right, guys, all right, uh, Jacksonville Jaguars, all right, New York Jets, ride me to victory? That that's not that's not reality. That's not reality in today's NFL. That's not reality in, t- in today's real uh, in world of football. I think when you look at all of these guys, they all have traits that you can work with. It's about finding out 
how can you best leverage their skill set to lead you to extended success? And so for some of these guys, it might mean that you have to play a very specific way. If you've got Mac Jones, you're going to play play things a lot differently than if you have Trevor Lawrence, right? You're not going to be able to do all the same things. Just like if you have Justin Fields versus Trey Lance versus Zach Wilson, all those guys are going to do different things. The offense changed a little bit when Carson Wentz went to the bench and then when Jalen Hurts came in, right? You're going to do different things that will fit that quarterback. And I think with all of these guys, it's about trying to best figure out how do we put this guy in the best position to succeed and then you, you allow that guy to get reps. It's a, it's a really fun process that I love studying, and I thought that Mike really illustrated that very, very well. That's a long way for me to answer this question, uh, Jared. So uh, to me, when I would look at Jalen Hurts, the, again, the prospect, the second-round pick out of Oklahoma in 2020, compared to this group, I would put him in that same bucket as Mac Jones. So uh, he'd be competing for like that fifth spot uh, behind those other four guys. So just in, in my opinion, uh, just looking at that group. Let's go to the next question here from Yoho Checo, who left a five-star review saying, I'm not an Eagles fan at all, but I found this podcast during last year's draft cycle, and it's absolutely the best one out there, successfully bringing together evaluators who do the work and have the credentials to provide independent analysis rather than summarizing groupthink. Yoho, I appreciate you saying that. That's awesome. And the second part of uh, what you said, the Senior Bowl coverage is so thorough that I almost feel that they need to specifically highlight non-Senior Bowl players on the the on-the-clock segments because the audience gets so familiarized with Senior Bowl players during the week of practice. So uh, that's actually a pretty good or an interesting bit of advice, and I've never thought about it from that standpoint. So... I'm glad that you brought that up, and it's certainly something I'll keep in mind here uh, moving forward over the next few weeks. Maybe we'll do some uh, some more segments where we talk less about those guys and you know m- more about some of these you know, low name underclassmen or the seniors that didn't go to Mobile and things of that nature. We'll definitely try and keep that uh, more in tune. So thanks so much for bringing that to my attention. We're gonna go one more question here from longtime listener Sean Wolford, who left a five star review saying Kyle Pitts is the most polarizing prospect in this draft, in my opinion, given his talent and the positional value. So many people have said not to look at Pitts as a tight end given his ability to win outside and even play X receiver for certain snaps. That said, if you were to just rank pass catchers, where would Pitts rank for you in this year's draft? So, uh, Sean, that's a great question, and I think a lot of people would offer differing opinions on that, and I don't know that you could sit here and say any of them are wrong. Uh, it's funny, we were just talking, I said this at the top of the show, we talked about this over on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast, uh, myself and Ben, uh, when we did a, a thorough tape review of Travis Kelsey and the value he has for Kansas City and what they do to allow him to succeed. And I think you would kind of make that comparison to Kyle Pitts and kind of where I've landed on it from it, just from a pure position value standpoint is this. It's almost like how I looked at Quentin Nelson a couple of years ago. Everyone would say, look, Quentin Nelson is maybe the best player in the draft. If you're just looking straight talent, where he is at his position, the level of success we expect, Quentin Nelson is the best player. But you're not going to take him number one you're not going to take him number two. You're not going to take him number three. So where would you take Quentin Nelson? And the, at the end of the day, I sat there, and this is, this is not an original opinion of mine. I actually, uh, if, I, if I remember right, the first person I heard just kind of put it this way was Bucky Brooks over on the Move the Six podcast. And he said, look, if you feel that Quentin Nelson is a gold jacket player, you think he's going to be a Hall of Famer? You, regardless of positional value, you take him. If he's that level of prospect, if he is the, the unicorn at that position, then you feel good about that, that selection. Now, I could see you saying, well, but look, we, we, you know, the positional value, we really feel that there's a, a low chance of probability that he hits that level, that maybe we can find a, a tight end who could do similar things in round two, round three, round four, round five. 
Hey, and I'm not going to be one to disagree with you on that. I think that that's a very viable argument. There are smart people on both sides of the aisle on this discussion. I think when you look at Kyle Pitts and you say, we're just going to lump him in with these pass catchers, most people would say he's the number two guy behind Jamar Chase. And I think that that's a fair opinion to have. And I think when you look at his ability to win outside, to win inside, to he's you know too big for uh, for safeties, he's too strong for, for corners, he's too fast for linebackers, that whole deal. His, he's a matchup nightmare. He plays the ball really well. He's a two-way player. We've broken down Kyle Pitts. We did a, a very thorough conversation with Greg last week here on the show in Pick 6 all about what he brings to the table. So, To me, I look at Kyle Pitts as one of the best players in this draft. If you say that, hey, the positional value, we just just can't take him here. Totally get it. If you also say, look, we feel like in our offense, he is going to be the focal point of the pass game. He is going to be a perennial Pro Bowl player. He's going to catch 70, 80 passes every single season at the very least. He's going to be up there as one of the leading receivers in the league. Yeah, guess what? You've got a vision for how he's going to operate in your offense. Go for it. That that, that would be great to watch. So uh, to me, I I think that you can make an argument either way. He's a fun player to watch. Uh, I'm excited to see ultimately where he ends up. So Sean, uh, Yoho, Jared, I really appreciate everybody uh, for all three of your questions. Great stuff there. Thanks so much to everybody that's gone onto our Apple podcast page, left us a rating, and leave us a comment. Again, if you've got a question about a player, position rankings, mock draft, really whatever it is. Or if you're you're like Yoho Checo and you've got a suggestion for the show, I love that stuff. Please, we're always trying to get better. We're always adding little tweaks here to uh, specific segments or to shows and how we structure things. So uh, if you've got anything for me, just go on our Apple Podcast page and leave it there in the comments section. Excited. We're getting closer and closer to the NFL draft. This this show is really heating up. Excited for everybody that continues uh, to check us out. We'll be back early next week. Myself, Dane Brugler, Ben Fennell. We've got another great guest here uh, for our Blueprint segment. I love this segment every single week here on the show. We'll be back uh, Tuesday morning right here on the Journey to the Draft podcast. In just over three years, Eagles Autism Foundation has raised millions of dollars for autism research and care. But this is about so much more than just fundraising. This is about making a transformational difference in the lives of those affected by autism. This is about bringing our community together. With inclusive, sensory-friendly events and accessible resources, we meet families where they need us most and where we can serve them best. Together, we're united in our mission to improve the lives of the autism community and to turn awareness into action. It's what we focus on every day in every way.